KCSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Mono. This is the Henry George Program, a show all about land, policy, and politics. Between the program, we have a spotlight on a city we've yet to cover, a very big one, a very notable one, uh, New York City, located in the state of New York. We have on a, a very well-informed guest to go into a excruciating deep dive into the complicated world of property taxes in New York. Talk about the history that got us here and the reforms that are looking at uh, making some changes, as well as a spotlight on the rest of the greater world of New York City housing issues. One final note before we get into it, uh, this was recorded late last year uh, and delayed for various technical reasons, so when we're referring to this year, uh, it's uh, 2022 and not 2023, uh, please, <laughs> please bear with that. Uh, but without further ado, uh, yeah, let's just get into it. So, hello, Bobby. Thanks uh, so much for being here. Ho, ho, ho. Happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, I met uh, I met you for the first time this summer. I was in New York City for the first time in a while. Uh, congrats for being you know, in the only real city in the United States. And uh, we were meeting up with some other like you know housing folks based in New York City. And the two of us, for whatever reason, started talking about property taxes in New York City for like a couple hours and uh there's there's a lot it, it's 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 fascinating and uh you seem to really be uh interested <laughs> so i feel like it would be good to bring you back in and talk about it some more yeah right on happy to be here um i've actually never participated in any property tax related political advocacy in, in here in new york but yeah i really did just start reading about it one day and it was intriguing to me um but i am involved in some housing advocacy mostly through open new york and I'm also an urban planning student at Hunter College, part of the City University of New York. I've, I've done a little bit of research on on property taxes in an academic setting, but uh, yeah, that was a good conversation. I had a great time. We were in Bushwick. You remember we were in Bushwick, right? Yeah, absolutely. Drinking Miller High Lives yeah. in Bushwick. It's it's the real life. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I guess the the thing about it, you sent me a lot of you know information and like. There is no shortage information you can read about property tax in New York, but the more you read, there is just so like it gets more and more and more complicated. I've like I there's like hours and hours of videos of equalization board people talking about like but I think the more you realize you can get lost in the weeds of New York City property taxes and my my uh, conclusion is that's the point. Like it's supposed to just overwhelm you with all this kind of nonsense. And the real point in the end is like, what's the impact? Uh, I mean, if you if you're gonna like specify in the end, uh, what what is the main impact of you know the New York City property tax regime? Yeah, I can discuss some of the consequences. Um, there's there's a few there's a few primary consequences. One is that the property tax system is highly inequitable um, in that owners of high value properties, residential properties tend to pay the lowest effective tax rates. People tend to be higher income. They tend to be wealthier. Owners of lower value properties who tend to be lower income and non-white tend to pay the highest effective tax rates in the city. That's one consequence is uh, inequities um, between residential property owners um, and then there are inequities between different property tax classes. Uh, so there's four property tax classes in New York. Class one is a residential category um, for properties that contain one to three units. Um, there's class two, which is another residential category uh, for buildings that contain 
four or more units. That includes both multifamily rental and multifamily uh, owner-occupied housing. So condominiums, but also cooperative. And there's class three, which is utilities. And don't don't ask me to elaborate on class three because I, I don't really know much about that. Yeah, it seems doesn't matter that much. But yeah. yeah. And then class four is is commercial properties. New York City's Department of Finance publishes statutory nominal tax rates for all these categories. But really, those those official tax rates are completely meaningless because the Department of Finance uses fundamentally different assessment methods um, for determining the assessed value. So, for example, class one, those those properties that can name one to three residential units, the Department of Finance uses a sales based methodology to arrive at the market value. And then they apply an assessment ratio of 6% to arrive at the assessed value. And from there, there may be exemptions that are applied to the assessed value to reduce the taxable value and then abatements to actually reduce the taxes. And then in class two, there's uh, class two uses a, a income capitalization method as does class three and class four. Um, and so rental buildings in class two um, submit what's called a real property income and expense statement, which is used to determine the net operating income for these buildings. Uh, and then the Department of Finance applies a capitalization rate um, to the net operating income to arrive at a market value. And then the Department of Finance applies a 45% assessment ratio to arrive at the assessed value. And you'll note that class two properties includes condos, co-ops, and rental buildings uh, but it's only the rental buildings that are submitting these these RPs, the real property income and expense statements. And so, so, but there's a state law that forces the Department of Finance to assess condos and co-ops as if they were income generating rental buildings. And so what the Department of Finance does is they create these hypothetical property values for condos and co-ops by identifying what they consider to be comparable rental buildings. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's like yeah. in general, like over owner's equivalent rent or something is like, that's a legitimate approach. It just seems like they do a really bad job of it. Like in the end. They do a very bad job of it. Yeah. 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 Um, in the end, like the, the general like takeaway I see, it's like, it's uh, on the order of like 0.6 to 0.8% is, you know, condos versus rental building. So you know, somewhere on the on the verge of like two thirds or three quarters. You know, it's uh, you just you know a bigger burden for uh, for rental units. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And a consequence of that is that um, it disincentivizes rental housing production in the city, um, which constrains the city's overall housing supply and contributes to the affordability crisis here. Yeah, so like like really big picture, it's like all these like I mean the process. You see this in a lot of places, a whole like fractional assessment, yeah. uh, which is just instead of saying you assess it, then you put a tax rate. Uh, instead, you say you assess it, then you take a fraction of it, and then you do a tax rate on that. Uh, and right. that yeah, what can what can vary? It's like question one is like why would anyone ever do that? Because you're just multiplying two numbers. Why not just have one number? Uh, obfuscation may be the point, but uh, you know, in some of the documents you're sending, I was just talking about you uh, before we went on mic, but uh, yeah, I was looking in like the history of it, and basically up until the 70s, all of New York State said 
don't like we don't do fractional assessment here. Like this is you, know, you take the market assessment, uh, end of story. You take a tax rate, but in practice, up through the seventies, everyone was just de facto doing fractional assessments. Like it was right. just so they were just thumbing their nose at state law. Uh, and, you know, I think very broadly, what is the reason for that? It's because, you know, uh, landowners, you know, homeowners, it's very convenient if you kind of, you know, grease the wheels and give them a nice, you know, basically discount across the board. That's it's very, uh, very popular for for tax assessors to, uh, you know, have their their home voters uh, get a nice break. And what's really fascinating is like. There's this like weirdo, this guy uh, who was an upper Upper West Side dude, uh, but he and his wife owned a place uh, over in Fire Island, and he like even though he was basically he was like he started a lawsuit to say I'm being undertaxed. He was and he said like right. my interest is mainly curious. Uh, I don't expect the layman to understand my motivations, but he said he started suing the town of Islip for undertaxing uh, his resident because like uh, residents there because they were not doing a full market uh, assessment. And in the end, I mean, just to sum up the story, the uh, appeals court of New York agreed with him and they said, okay, yeah, you actually have to follow the state laws. And this became a massive panic because this would mean homeowners, especially in New York City, would suddenly get this incredibly high increase in uh, the taxes they pay so uh, New York City, in, or the entire state, but uh, New York City was driving it, they fixed the bug by saying, no, we actually will have fractional assessments, and it's going to have all these different classes, uh, and, and really, in the end, we're going to make it preferential to homeowners. So yeah. you know, they, they fixed that problem. Yeah, totally. Uh, and so the, the property tax class system came out of that lawsuit in the city of New York, but also assessed value growth caps came out of that as well, which applies to those class one properties. So those small residential, the small residential properties, one to three units, assessed value, the assessed value of those properties can't increase more than 6% annually uh, or, or can't increase more than 20% over a five year period. Um, which, which if that, you, if you own compound so that. Inequity, that's why you see so much inequity amongst homeowners um, in that category, why homeowners in Park Slope, one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in the city, or West Village, also one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in the city, pay an effective tax rate of, you know, point point one percent, point two percent, whereas homeowners in South Shore, Staten Island, or in the South Bronx, Eastern Queens, maybe pay um, upwards of of one percent, ten times the effective tax rate. Yeah, I mean, in, I mean, in general, I think that's kind of everyone knows about Prop 13 in California, but yeah. the fact that New York City has its own effective Prop 13, I mean, the 20% over five years, if you uncompound that, that's 3.7% a year, right. uh, which is, you know, not as bad as the 2% out here. But in time, I'm pretty sure that the real estate values in New York City are going up much more than 4% a year. So. Yeah. Uh, if that continues to hold, like that's just going to make this, you know, this same kind of uh, aristocracy of of, of long time landowners. And uh, yeah, as you, as you were saying earlier, there's a there's general inequities over who is paying what, and a big a big thing is where uh, you're sending some documents that were showing the distribution, 
uh, of effective tax rates. And, you know, basically it's yeah, a similar story that what you see in, you know, a lot of different cities, which is just uh, marginal land, you know, kind of lower income uh, people living out in the sticks relatively are paying higher rates and people in the yeah. city core are paying lower rates. So Manhattan is has a lot less than you have out in, you know, Queens and ever, you know, so it's that's not ideal and but it seems to be exactly the point. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. I have a question about Prop 13. So, so what upon ownership changes in California do do assessed values reset to market values? Okay, so yeah, that's actually a great follow up question for you. Uh, so yeah, in California, uh, they reset every time it's sold. Uh, also, every time if you do a, a a major renovation, at least the improvements they'll they'll reassess that if it's a major renovation. Uh, as opposed to uh, Measure Five in Oregon, never resets even if it passes hands. So, is is New York City's thing uh, about the cap? Is that is, is that based on the property or the owner? Yeah, so it's based on the property. It does not reset. Upon- Interesting. Uh, However, the those assessed value growth caps, the six percent year per annual cap, or the twenty percent every five years, um, that only applies to increases in land values. So, um, so improvement, um, improvements, renovations, and so on are not uh, are not capped by the assessed value growth caps. Of course, of course, it's, of course, it's not. Yeah. So like in, in general, like it's like some of the, you know, a lot of people agitating, like there are property tax abatements, you know, for improvements and everything, but it seems like it's done in kind of goofy ways. You know, it doesn't seem like it really, yeah, it is this, this, and it expired earlier this year, but yeah. more or less, it's part of a big scheme of it's almost sort of like a density bonus where they're trying to get inclusionary zoning benefits for subsidized affordable housing by allowing a property tax abatement for 35 years, you know, just across the board. They have different rules on whether it's below 92nd Street in Manhattan or out in the, you know, out in the area. And it seems like more or less uh, people are complaining that uh, people are doing, I, I guess I would call it geographic arbitrage of they you find out the places that the uh, subsidized rate which is 130% AMI if the AMI is is broader which it sounds like it kind of is you know more or less it's not very localized so if you go out to the sticks you can basically have the quote unquote you know affordable housing which is the same rate as the market you know units you'd buy so like everyone's just kind of using this provision to you know just <laughs> kind of like it, it incents everyone to basically build out sprawl instead of doing kind of, you know, building in the core of the city. So it seems just really badly designed across the board. Yeah, I think that's correct. Yeah, so that's you're referring to 421A tax abatement, which which was initially created in the 1970s. It did not stipulate affordability requirements. It was, it was introduced as a way to... Um, to encourage housing growth amidst New York City's economic decline and, and fiscal crisis in the 1970s. Uh, and since then, I think maybe, you know, maybe not until the 90s or the 2000s, those, those affordability requirements were, um, were included. But, but yeah, you, you're right. Um, except 
in Manhattan core, most of the inclusionary units in those in 421A buildings are set 130% AMI, and, and, and yeah, oftentimes the the rents in those those uh, income restricted units are not that much uh, lower than in than in market rate units. And right now, there's a lot of um, chatter about how many vacant rent stabilized units there are in New York City. There's there's a lot of conflicting reporting on this, but I've seen anywhere from like 40 to 90,000 uh, vacant rent stabilized units in the city. Um, and I think a lot of those are actually 421A income restricted units um, because all, all 421A units have to be um, registered with the state as rent stabilized units, um, even though they're built after 1974. Right. Most rent stabilized units um, are rent stabilized in New York because they're built before 1974 and because they are in buildings with six or more rental units. Um, but 421A units um, build or sorry, units within 421A buildings are also subject to rent stabilization. Um, what well, so just think- just the ones like all of them, or just the ones that basically are the uh, the 20 percent or whatever of the. Yeah, so I think in in the recent iteration of 421A, which was which was renewed under Cuomo, I can't remember when, 20, 2016 or 2017, both the, both the um, income-restricted and the non-income-restricted units are subject to rent stabilization. Interesting. Um, so I think a lot of these empty rent-stabilized units that these uh, media outlets are reporting on are actually in these 421A buildings, um, and are particularly the, the income restricted units um, because developers or the new owners of those buildings are having a hard time filling those 130% AMI units um, because the rents, the rents are probably about the same as the market rate units, but it's a real pain in the ass to get uh, an inclusionary unit in New York. You have to go through the lottery and yeah. there's a Steps big big cues. Well, so it's a question for like you're mentioning like it's a disincentive all across the board on building res- like rentals as opposed to condos and co-ops. But do rentals still get built? Because I, I, like in a place like Vancouver, which is like famous for the fact they build like 99% condos, like rentals just don't get built there. But even with this, do new rentals get built? Yeah. Yes. Um and since 421A lapsed in June of this year, rental housing starts have declined substantially. I was, I was trying to get the the exact data on that, but I couldn't. I couldn't really find it. It's hard to find. But it is my understanding that um, rental housing production starts have declined a lot since um, 421A lapsed. Um, and there there are now sites in the city that are just not being developed um like in many cases sites that would have been developed as multifamily privately financed rental housing through 421a could alternatively be constructed could be developed as condominiums or as 100 percent affordable housing because there are different there are different tax exemptions mm. property exemptions that exist for 100 percent affordable housing that are still in effect um but even when 421a was in effect the city was only netting about mm, 15 to 20,000 new housing units annually. And not all those were rentals, um, but the majority were definitely rentals. Um, and I think pretty much every 
every multifamily rental building with maybe more than 10, 20 units um, used 421 before it before it lapsed. Yeah, so it, it had it, it certainly had an effect on on rental housing production figures. It's not the only factor at play. I mean, zoning is obviously a key factor. New York City has pretty restrictive zoning, um, given how high demand of a city it is. We there's funky things with building code regulations here that are particularly restrictive and and also constrained housing development. But, but we we don't need to get into the weeds in that. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like it, it is interesting though. Like, what is the point of these abatements? And you'd say that I mean, like, there's a precedent. I, I think like back in the 1910s, they called the Al Smith Act of I think it was a statewide thing of just basically it was as opposed to all these kind of weird. Uh, you know, kind of uh, very fussy details, I believe was just kind of across the board. I think it said for 10 years, uh, no taxes on improvements, uh, which, you know, I think they built a lot more housing. And at the point at that time, uh, the idea is like, we need to build a lot more housing in New York City, et cetera. And, right. and the question is like, is the general idea we need to build a lot more housing in New York City? Because I feel like probably for, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of the discourse, the idea is like, no, we don't. But I guess the answer is, you know, yeah. Do do they and where? I I I'm I'm very far away. I, I know about the fights over like Soho and all this, but uh, you know, the the idea like New York. A lot of people would say, oh, New York's already dense. You know, it's it's built out. Uh, but you know, it it seems like that's not a rule across the board. Yeah, certainly. I mean, there are low density neighborhoods within New York and. A good 15% of New York City's land mass is still zoned exclusively for single-family homes, and then a, a larger percentage is zoned exclusively for pretty low-density, missing-middle housing. Um, I mean, especially if you look at the metro area, because, I mean, the city itself, oh, but, yeah. like, really, I mean, all, like, the big chunk of Long Island really is New York City and, you know, New Jersey, Connecticut. My, my dad's side of the family's from Hempstead and all that, you know, it's just like, right. there's no reason that shouldn't be part of New York City. Oh yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, and and Nassau County and Suffolk County and Long Island, I think I think those counties do consistently report some of the lowest housing production figures in in the whole country. Um, Jersey is a lot better, um, and and so Westchester County is to some extent as well. But but Nassau and Suffolk County, um, you know, produce virtually no, no housing, um, much less per capita even than the city of New York. In general, like, I mean, I think we're seeing a lot of, you know, as far as uh, trying to get different jurisdictions to do their fair share, like California has a lot of state intervention. Is like, is there any chance of like New York City pushing towards like trying to, I mean, I could dream of just annexing, you know, all of Long Island in New York City, but like at least trying to use Albany to make it do a better job or is that, is that in the cards or does that seem plausible? Yeah, it seems like a political possibility in this upcoming legislative session. So the governor, the current governor, Kathy Hochul, who replaced Andrew Cuomo after he resigned, he did propose some statewide zoning reforms in the last uh, during the last fiscal year's um, budget for the state. Um, but because of political opposition on Long Island, all of those zoning reform provisions were removed from the budget. And, and they, they weren't particularly radical re- 
proposals. I mean, one was just an ADU preemption law that would have been that would have applied state statewide, um, permitted one, maybe up to two ADUs per residential lot in certain cases. And then there was um, what was called a transit oriented development TOD zoning reform that would have permitted um, it would have compelled municipalities that are serviced by Long Island Railroad and Metro North Railroad. Mm-hmm. Um, so towns within Suffolk, Norfolk, Westchester counties, and I guess some some other upstate counties like uh, Putnam and Dutchess County. Like, like, um, like what kind of radius from stations? Yeah, I think it was a half mile. Okay. Either a quarter mile or a half mile. And those municipalities would have been compelled to um, zone for up to 25 dwelling units per acre um, surrounding surrounding those commuter rail stations. Okay. Well, uh, so, but again, so, that was like stripped well, from the budget proposal yeah. as well due to political opposition, yeah. Well, it sounds like it's starting to like, yeah, I mean, a lot of that resembles the kind of reforms in California. So it sounds like kind of people are you know, kind of reaching towards the same stuff, even if that got scuttled. It's in it's in the air. So that's, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, for sure. For sure. There was a proposal to establish like a New York equivalent of 40B, which uh, 40B is in Massachusetts, um, that uh, is, is essentially a, a, is a builder's remedy um, legislation Nice uh, for towns that have not uh, met their affordable housing requirements. It would set affordable housing production targets for each municipality in the state and for municipalities that don't hit those targets. Um, their zoning powers would be would be stripped. Um, so it, kind of similar to what's happening in Santa Monica and Beverly Hills and I guess uh, uh, other cities in Southern California right now. Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, what's interesting to me is just like New York City is New York City. And it's so weird to me that so much of the politics seem like just the kind of dumb stuff you'd see in a small town of just like, oh, yeah, the homeowners rule the roost. It's like when I see stuff like, oh, yeah, homeowners control New York City tax policy and stuff like, I mean, it's an unrelated issue nominally, but like congestion taxes for cars, like no one but freaks would drive a car in Manhattan, but they can't do congestion taxes because these weird freaks just like still act like it's an average suburb or something. And it's just like, it's so strange to me that a place where it's like, yeah, renters have a heavy majority of the population and the, the built form is obviously not like some kind of dumb suburb, but you can't like, you still have the, like there, there isn't the political power to say, let's stop bending over backwards to, to basically serve these, you know, petite and large landowners in this area. Yeah, 70% of New Yorkers live in rental households. Yeah, you're totally right. Domo- homeowners dominate tax policy and certainly transportation policy as well. Yeah. I mean, and, and just in general, I guess like if you like the very broad, I mean, what is the discourse, you know, how is it addressed there? Because it feels like, I mean, from afar, it seems like most places, New York City is no exception, when there is like you're not basically developing the core or the periphery, you know, if it's kind of stagnant, it's just basically you get this pressure cooker and things get more and more expensive. And how is it relieved? It's, you know, relieved to pass the gentrification. You know, you start to spread out like, oh, yeah, we can kind of displace 
uh, without really changing very much, you know, let's, you know, let's sneak out through Brooklyn, probably, you know, up through Queens next and everything. And, you know, that's, that's the whole path of, uh, everything becoming unaffordable to just, you know, and, and I suppose it seems pretty obvious. It's like, you need to do something to relieve this pressure, but it's very easy to kind of just say, oh, nothing can be done. We're already built out. You know, you're, you know, any sort of change is going to harm people. But I mean, it, it just feels like this, the status quo is, is pretty nasty. And I, I don't know, like if, if like, do people, does the status quo seem like it's, it's imperiled or is it just, you know, still this whole thing of like, the only thing everyone can agree on is not to do anything. Yeah, I would say that there's more hope at the level of at the state government level than the municipal level in New York in terms of land use and zoning reform. Yeah, I, I, I don't I don't have a lot of hope. So a lot of people I know are, are more optimistic about um, <laughs> municipal zoning reforms than I am. Um, uh, I really think that that the state needs to intervene and just uh, preempt local zoning in a lot of cases. But is it right to say that like the next, you know, the, the battleground is, you know, if you don't do anything, it's gentrifying up through, through Queens. Yeah. There are already neighborhoods in Queens that are, that are gentrifying. I live in Ridgewood, which is on the border with Bushwick and, and Ridgewood is certainly a rapidly gentrifying neighborhood. Um, and Astoria as well, which is across the East river from the Upper East side and Sunnyside, Long Island city, Although Long Island City is is um, an interesting case because it was a formerly industrial neighborhood that was rezoned in the early 2000s to uh, high density residential use. It's a high income neighborhood. It's a higher income neighborhood now um, than it used to be, but no one no one used to live there um, prior to the 2000s, really. But a lot of the housing production in Long Island City has probably absorbed demand that would have otherwise manifested in displacement and gentrification in neighborhoods like Astoria, Sunnyside, Woodside. Yeah. And that that's kind of the that has long been the growth and zoning policies that the city of New York has pursued, which these really tightly constrained neighborhood rezonings, especially in formerly industrial neighborhoods where there's less um, less nimbyism to contend with because there are simply fewer residents. And that was that was kind of the same. That was kind of similar with downtown Brooklyn and the Williamsburg waterfront to other neighborhoods that have shouldered a lot of housing development and are surrounded by uh, neighborhoods, some some very wealthy neighborhoods that um, haven't experienced any housing production in in decades to this point. Yeah, so I mean, and that's I mean, I don't want to like kind of get in the weeds too much on just like zoning, zoning, zoning. Uh, insofar as like, I mean, just very broadly, I mean, that's just one aspect. I mean, it's a big aspect. How do you shape the city? What does the general like commuting flows look like? Uh, you know, how can you expand, how can you expand transit? I mean, that's what's so sad too. Is just, you know, it's like yeah, they they aren't building new subways like they used to. Uh, yeah. But on top of it, like, years, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess the question too is just kind of like, yeah, what does it look like for you know controlling the resources of the city and and everything? I mean, I I hear a lot. I mean, I realize it's kind of out of the scope of this about like NYCHA, the public housing. Becoming disinvested, selling off, you know, assets and resources. There's like, you know, there isn't a ton of you know, basically publicly controlled land, but that's a whole thing. I mean, just very, very, very broadly, New York City is an inc- like there's just like multiple trillions of dollars of land value in the in the, in the in the city. So like, if the city just used that for public good, 
there's a lot to go around, but instead, you know, it tends to flow to private hands. And is there any real hope of either through property tax reform uh, to tap into that or you know, more direct public ownership or whatever? Because it's there's like you sent like there's like a document advisory report about you know simplifying modernizing New York City's property tax system and like just it, it just in general it seems like they said okay let's try to have more horizontal equity but a lot of it's like let's make sure we have homeowners have ability to pay you know so let's have more homeowner relief it's like I don't know like it doesn't seem like this is even in the right direction of like a the reform they need yeah and that was also a revenue neutral proposal um yeah it's not so it would reduce it would reduce the i mean it would change the how the assessments are performed it would abolish the fractional assessments and abolish the growth cap which which i would certainly support but then it would in turn reduce the the property tax rates that are applied to the market values of those properties and that and that reform also wouldn't it wouldn't relieve um rental housing um from its disproportionate property tax burden as well. Um, I mean, I still support that reform, I think, even though I, I agree that it's... it's if, if it's a step in the right direction, I can agree. It just seems a little, little bit uh, maybe underwhelming. But it, so is this, is this... Oh, certainly it's underwhelming, yeah. Is this um, likely to, to move ahead or what's the pol- politics look no, like? No, I don't this? think it's likely to move ahead. I, I'm a pretty pessimistic person in this <laughs> regard. Um, I, at least not for now. It's not going to move ahead. Um, it requires state authorization right new york city doesn't really have a lot of municipal control over its um tax policies uh right new york city can increase or decrease its nominal property tax rates but but the municipality can't can't reform the actual property tax structure they can't change the assessment practices yeah without state authorization so so it requires it requires state enabling legislation, and as far as I can tell, there's no real appetite amongst state politicians to enable those kinds of reforms. Well, how often does stuff like because back in that original Hellerstein case back in the '70s, he was complaining yeah. like, yeah, they increase the tax rate, but they never re like reassess it. Like he said, for 25 years they didn't reassess right. it. He's being uh, assessed uh, for 13,000, uh, and then. Only a quarter of that was a fraction, but stuff was selling for forty five thousand by that point. Uh, right. But like, yeah, for for just in general throughout New York City, how often how often does reassessment happen? I'm not sure. the The Department of Finance, uh, like the reports that the Department of Finance publishes, suggests that they uh, reassessments happen annually. But but yeah, I'm not I'm not I'm not entirely. Sure. Um, I, I don't know a lot about how the Department of Finance operates, to be quite honest. You know, all of New York City governance tends to be crowded in many layers of of mystery and secrecy. But I think the Department of Finance is maybe the biggest culprit in that regard. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, like the, the, the you kind of have to work there to understand how that agency functions and how their assessment practices function yeah i mean some of these all these documents are kind of saying it's like oh yeah they have all these processes that are not public <laughs> it's kind right. of it's a weird dark yeah. magic uh and and like in the end i mean to to like restate the point uh as i said like the valuation effective tax rate on condos and, and rentals was 0.58 percent and 0.82 percent like that's yeah. like in california 
everyone kind of like rises to the top of the Prop 13 limit, which is 1%. Like this is well below 1%. And, yeah. uh, yeah. which is, you know, that's pretty pathetic. Uh, and, you know, just especially when you're talking about, you know, the, the value you can get in, you know, New York City that they're leaving all this money on the table. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think there's about $1.7 trillion worth of land value in Manhattan alone. So, so a few trillion dollars worth of land value in the entire city. Yeah, I think, yeah, New York City certainly doesn't utilize property taxation well as a revenue source. Property taxes account for about 30% of New York City's municipal revenues, um, which is actually a lower percentage than a lot of other municipalities in the U.S. Um, and, and there's a few reasons for that. Part of that is New York City just imposes a, a pretty diverse array of taxes that other municipalities don't impose. Like there's a municipal sales tax in New York. There's also municipal income tax in New York. And then part of it also is that a lot of federal funding flows through the city government. The, the, the city administers a lot of federally funded social programs that are typically administered by state governments. But, but yeah, in the end, property taxes only account for 30% of the city's municipal revenues, um, which is about $30 billion, about a $100 billion um, expense budget in, in New York City currently. Yeah, it's a lot uh, easier to pass some sort of municipal sales tax and, uh, I guess, you know, try to claw it back from uh, the property owners. Uh, yeah, yeah. And there are other real estate related taxes, like there's a real estate transfer tax called real property transfer tax. And there's a mortgage recording tax that you know, but they probably yield a couple hundred million dollars, maybe maybe close to a billion dollars um, between the two of them annually. Um, but yeah, I, you're definitely right. The city does not utilize um, property taxation efficiently, and and you're also right that that the reforms that um, were outlined in that document that I sent you would not actually yield any new revenue for the city. Yeah, I mean, it would make it would make property taxation slightly more equitable, which which is laudable, of course. Um, yeah. It's like, I mean, like, there's one really dramatic uh, chart in one of these uh, documents you sent, uh, which I, I actually I don't know how to square it with some of the other information, but it's 50 largest cities. So look, the 50 largest cities in the U.S., probably metros. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm actually not sure. I mean, maybe it's cities. Uh, looking at cities by apartment property taxes, New York City has the second highest uh, right. of, of property taxes for apartments, which is 4% effective tax rate, which I don't know how that squares with the other place saying it was 0.82 effective tax rate on rentals in class two. Uh, but then it's, you know, second in, in apartments, but it is 44th in homestead property taxes, 0.6%. Right. So, I mean, it's just, yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty nuts. And you can kind of, you know, you can just see across the board, the same, the same basic, uh, you know, geographic stuff. I mean, I mean, to look, I mean, to just to say another point that, uh, you know, there, there is no split rate taxes. So, you know, more right. or less the fact that like it is applied on, uh, you know, even cheap houses on the periphery, like they're paying, a, you know, just a large amount. They're really squeezing folks on the edge <laughs> to, to not touch stuff in Manhattan. Yeah. Yeah. In Manhattan. And at this point, a lot of core North Brooklyn neighborhoods as well um those are actually park slope cobble hill clinton hill um, neighborhoods kind of adjacent or um, in close proximity to downtown brooklyn um it's it's homeowners in those neighborhoods that i think on average pay 
the lowest effective tax rates in the city. Um, yeah, actually, and Bill that was one of the, maps. the former mayor. He he lives in Park Slope, and, and he talked about paying you know like five thousand dollars in annual property taxes on a I don't know five six million dollar brownstone when he was mayor. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it says like Williamsburg. The district is Williamsburg and Bedstoy and stuff down here in Brooklyn. That is the lowest. Right, yeah. That's the lowest for homeowner percentage. You know, but it's you know pretty. Basically, just the richer areas pay the least. Uh, is this way this one map looks? I actually don't like speaking of like Park Slope and this whole area. Like that's like w- one thing I never really kind of understood about uh, co-ops are you know kind of a predominantly new york thing as far as yeah. like you don't see them anywhere else and like i was wondering is that like was that because of some sort of advantage financially or is this just kind of a cultural thing that basically it can't get started elsewhere even though nominally it isn't exploding in new york tax or anything but like it's just oh that's the way we do it here i do you know much about co-ops and like why they tend to be yeah it's a it's a great question. I don't really know a lot about co-ops and the history of co-ops. Uh, at this point, it seems pretty cultural. I don't know if new co-ops are really constructed anymore. I, I think it's mostly condominiums um, in terms of multifamily owner occupied housing that is that is constructed. But yeah, I, I don't know. It's a good it's a good question. Yeah, it seems like a lot of it had to do with kind of like buying out disinvested areas while like New York City was kind of bought like you know. You know, emptying out in you know the kind of fiscal crisis days seems to be at least some of it, but it ex- pre-existed. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I probably should. I, I try to find some answers, but I really couldn't. Yeah, it certainly is true that when a lot of properties, residential properties, fell into city ownership, um, were in REM properties starting in the 1970s and through the 80s and 90s. A lot of those properties did convert to cooperative ownership. I'm not sure if that that phenomena accounts for. I'm not sure like what what share of the overall um, uh, amount of cooperative units that that phenomena accounts for. You know, but yeah. and and a lot of those co-ops are subject to affordability requirements and like receive separate different tax exemptions from from the city government. Um, um, and I I just know that partly through my. My work, I work for a, um, an affordable housing municipal agency in New York. Um, yeah, otherwise, I, I don't I don't know a lot about the history of, of co-ops. Um, they are distinctly New York phenomenon, though, it feels right. I mean, there's like, you know, kind of hippy-dippy co-ops in Santa Cruz or in Santa Barbara, whatever, but, um, but, but it's an entirely different legal structure. Yeah. I mean, you get like stuff like tenants in common in places in California, yeah. San Francisco, but that seems to be more or less like kind of skirting around, uh, condo conversion rules. So they would be a condo except they can't be. So it's all sorts of, you know, weird stuff. But I mean, as far as like, we were talking earlier about, you know, they were using the tax abatements as a way to generate affordable housing to, at least in, in theory, remedy the long queues and the lack of affordable housing. Yeah, like, is like as far as like other approaches, is that like the uh, do they have other tax or just like in general? What's what's your what's your what's your basic take on how it is doing as far as building enough subsidized units and what does what could it do to do more well i think 421a will probably be 
renewed under a different name. 421A is very popular, or is very unpopular on the political left in New York, and that's why it lapsed, because uh, it just didn't secure enough support um, in the legislature. There's um, a lot of a lot of more left-leaning politicians have one office in New York City, um, and they they didn't even vote on it uh, this year. They just let it lapse. So I think 421A will be reformed and renewed under a new name uh, with stricter um, affordability requirements. What I've heard is that it'll probably be renewed with a 25% overall affordability requirement. 10% of the units will be restricted at 40% AMI, another 10% at 60% AMI, and then 5% at 80% AMI versus the 30% at 130% AMI, uh, which was the case under like Cuomo's second second term, like 2016 to 2021. I don't really see 421A as as a good as a good mechanism for producing subsidized housing. That's not really its utility, in my opinion. Uh, its utility, in my opinion, is to really act as a band-aid to inefficiencies of New York City's property tax system and to allow rental housing buildings to actually pencil, whereas currently the, the property tax burden is so high on on rental housing that new construction of rental housing just doesn't doesn't pencil out. Um, sites that would have been developed as rental housing are, are being developed as condominiums instead, which uh, on the net, I think is worse for affordability. Um, but yeah, ideally, I mean, all of these tax statements and exemptions are really obnoxious. They're all Band-Aids, uh, creates a very Byzantine system that's impossible to navigate. Um, and ideally, ideally, we would just enact uh, deeper fundamental reforms to the property tax system and um, either eliminate property tax classes entirely or at least create tax parity between those property tax classes, along with abolishing the assessed value growth caps and all these other mechanisms that generate um, inequalities. Yeah, I mean, it seems it, it 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 does seem like everyone like the whole I guess the fight over 421A being good or bad has a lot to do like or are we getting enough affordability out of like new development? Are we you know or like or do we you know need to restructure it? But like the the weird kind of implicit assumption in that is like new development must pay a share, but like you know long time real estate owners. Like you're not clawing it back from them. It's like it's it's mm-hmm. it feels like they're like just in the shadows saying it's like oh yeah don't don't look back here you know we like we're we're benefiting from all this stuff but like as long as you don't see a crane or something people kind of uh, ignore the fact that there's just tremendous I mean wealth in in, in real estate uh, that yeah. is just that's just more invisible. Yeah, absolutely, and and that makes. That makes reforming the property tax regime in a fundamental manner really difficult um, because developers don't if developers can get their fortune on a tax exemption, you know, that's all they really need. They don't really care about um, enacting more fundamental long term reforms. Right. They're, they're going to sell those buildings before that exemption expires, no matter what, pretty much. And because the only other real constituents here are wealthy homeowners on the one hand and uh, existing landlords, right, um, especially rent-stabilized landlords, 
the only politicians that are really talking about um, property tax reform are those who represent homeowners in places like Staten Island or Eastern Queens, more conservative mm. um, NIMBY, home, NIMBY homeowners. Um, those are the only, those are actually the only Republican districts really in the city are in Staten Island um, and parts of Eastern Queens. Well, my, my, my council member is a Democrat, but he's, he's used to be a Republican. So, yeah. So, right. Like a lot of the left leaning state politicians who've recently, recently been elected to office, they don't have any incentive to, to support fundamentally reforming New York City's property taxes because the only constituents in their districts who care about property taxes are landlords. Um, there's not many homeowners in their districts. Um, and there's at least not many homeowners in the districts who are harmed by, by the current arrangements. And yeah, for obvious reasons, you're not going to find that many left-leaning politicians who are sympathetic to landlord concerns, especially the concerns of rent-stabilized landlords. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, like, are, are you saying like so? Like, if you're in a place where there's vanishingly few normal homeowners, like, do they not like listen to them? There's still, I mean, there's still people who are like are landowners in Lower Manhattan, even, but they're clearly very rich. But do they? The, I mean, do they? Do they control their elected representatives? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, th- th- those. Um, yeah, those. Those. Wealthy landowners are are um, yeah wield a lot of political clout and they actively benefit from yeah. um, New York City property taxes, with the exception of a lot of commercial property owners, right? Which is mostly composed of of office space in New York. Offices do actually pay really high effective tax rates, especially relative to owner occupied residences. And this is going to become a, a budgetary crisis, whether or not politicians want to deal with it right now or not, um, because the office occupancy rate is still below 50 percent, yeah. about 46 percent I, I saw today. Property values likely will fall for commercial buildings um, and property tax collections from commercial buildings will probably start to fall over the next few years. And right now, between 40 to 50 percent of New York City's total property tax revenue is sourced from commercial buildings, mostly offices. Yeah, it's always much, much easier. And that's a big question. Like you see this in so many places. Are they going to reassess it down uh, do they have the ability or inclination to reassess it down if it really is dropping in real terms as these leases yeah. become less attractive? Or are they going to keep it up? And then you might just see a lot of just de facto like vacancies of like people just don't want to own it if like they're being overtaxed on it. So it's I think it's like it's people want to keep their heads in the sand and say, oh, no, commercial commercial will continue to be this golden goose. But. Uh, I don't. I don't think. I think that they probably are gonna. They're in the middle of a rude awakening, one way or the other. Yeah, I agree. But I mean, it seems like a big, like the the, the biggest problem in so many ways. It seems like the landless. There's like a certain, like certain lack of clash consciousness of like they're getting screwed, and they you know don't seem to be able to get the political muscle to fight back against us. Uh, 
you know, fairly small amount of, of very rich landowners and everything. But, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know if like there's, if there's any way that could really change. I'd say like in some, like the very abstract, you know, larger ideas of development patterns throughout the general metro area. Like that's, no one's going to get worked up about that. And property texts are boring, you know? So I don't know. Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, it sounds like you're pretty much a pessimist in a lot of things, but it, you, you, do you think that's, going to continue to be the case even when you do have such high renters as you do there? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm, I'm not sure. I think that the tax inequities between the property tax classes, like particularly between class one, the small owners and class two multifamily owners, I, I don't think we're going to see fundamental reforms between those tax classes anytime soon. I think, I think it is possible. I think there is some political mo- momentum to reform the assessment practices within the class one properties, like abolishing those assessed value growth caps. I think that's possible. I don't know when it will happen. I think that for now, we're going to see a new iteration of 421A. It'll be called something different, 485W or something that will have stricter affordability requirements, um, which will appease some affordable housing advocates, some kind of the left, left NIMBY folks um, to, to an extent. I mean, they'll, they'll probably still oppose it, but um, it'll, it'll attenuate some of that opposition. And hopefully in tandem with reforms and renewals to 421A, there will also be some broad-based zoning and land use reforms, uh, as opposed to just site-specific and neighborhood-only rezonings. Um, ideally, ideally at the state level, um, I think that is in pragmatic terms, the most likely path forward towards um, facilitating greater affordability in New York for the time being, for the time being. Uh, do, do you think, I saw in one of it, like they're talking about moving away, like the class two contains rentals and condos and co-ops, and they're going to like yeah. filter out the condos and co-ops away from rental. Do you think that's going to be reformed or do you think that's unlikely? I would love it to be. Yeah. So the proposal was to was to move condos and co-ops and small rental buildings, rentals with 10 or fewer units from class two to class one. And so those properties would be assessed using a sales based methodology um, instead of the current income capitalization methodology, um, the, the latter of which is, is severely undervaluing a lot of high value condos and co-ops. I don't know. If, <laughs> I think that I would love I would love to see that. Um, but there's a lot of wealthy condo and co-op owners who wield a lot of political clout in New York. Yeah. Entrenched liberal uh, assembly and Senate districts in, in Manhattan. It seems like I'd really like the the one part of that of like like less than 10, 10 unit rentals being carved out from the larger rentals. It's like I, I find that to be so much at the core of so much bad politics is when the mom and pops speak for like the big landlords also because like there's a lot oh, of yeah. a lot of like you know white caping or white knighting for uh you know it's like oh everyone is you know. Like let, let's look at the, the the smallest land landlords, and if 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 you kind of have this one class of stuff, it's like okay, these are real landlords, but like yeah, let's stop like pretending like they're like babies or something, you know? So. Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely, uh, and yeah, as I mentioned before, rent stabilization doesn't apply to landlords who own or buildings that contain 
fewer than six units, right? So there's already this huge exemption from a very significant landlord-tenant law in New York City for thousands of small landlords. Sure. Uh, and I guess before we wrap up here, I mean, I, I feel like yeah, I'm, I'm you know pretty ignorant about this stuff. I mean, I've not spent a whole lot of time in New York, uh, but uh, I mean, like I remember we were talking too about the fact that like just so much can't be done because like historical protection and like just like a lot of the city is kind of frozen oh, sure. in amber. Is re- like is, is that how big of a deal is that in the big in the big scheme of things? Is, is that just something you have to live with, or do you think there's much of like is that? a fight that's going to happen more and more of like reforming this or can it be reformed? Should it be reformed? You're referring to neighborhood historic designations. I guess I remember talking about something or other. Yeah, yeah, totally. I I live in Ridgewood, which a significant portion of this neighborhood is a designated historic district. And I'm not, I'm definitely not an expert on this subject, but um, my, my understanding is that um, those historic districts, do place pretty significant limits on redevelopment and and even even during the soho rezoning process i thought uh that there were a lot of compromises made in that process to um to preserve historic buildings um and to preserve the entire historic district within soho um like most of the upzoning in that neighborhood rezoning uh, actually occurred on the peripheries of Soho um, mm. to preserve a lot of those historic um, ironclad buildings in, in in the core of the neighborhood. Yeah, I, I, w- I would love to see reforms to historic preservation policies, just like I would love to see reforms to building code policies. I think right now those topics haven't really entered the policy conversation, not just amongst politicians and electeds and other uh public officials but but even amongst like housing housing advocates i think like the focus right now is really on zoning and land use yeah i think hopefully yeah property taxation building codes um and and historic preservation could be a next step after we win some um, some zoning reforms and ten- tenant protections, of, of course, are are always a major focus of housing advocates in New York, and that that will remain the case. Um, and su- you know, supporting efforts to increase um, municipal funding for subsidized housing, hundred percent subsidized housing. Right, those are those are issues that advocates are constantly working on. Yeah, I mean, we're we're talking about you know kind of like the larger issues of of ownership and yeah you know, taxation, but like if if you like, I don't want to put you in the spot saying summarize the the tenant protection issues briefly, but okay. like, if if you had to summarize them briefly, what what are the general what were the general topology of the fight there? Yeah, so New York City has some of the strictest rent stabilization laws in the country. Um, New York City actually still has some rent control departments. Um, like like World War II era, like, exactly, you know, kind of yeah. like, yeah, like, you know, crude original version. But like, right, yeah, if, right. if, if, if you find your way in one of those, like, yeah, it's a sweet deal. Yeah, yeah. It is very hard to do. Um, and they now compose less than 1% of the rental housing stock in New York City. Um, but But rent stabilized units total about a million about a million rentals in new york city so a significant portion of of the city's population lives in in rent stabilized housing um and there are there are constantly political battles over um the contours of rent stabilization um and similar to 
New York City municipal taxation. Uh, the municipality doesn't have policy control over rent stabilization. The state the state has control over that system. Oh, interesting. That's very similar yeah. to Canada. You know, it goes up to provincial level. That's interesting. Uh, I yeah. I mean, honestly, I, I don't understand like people people hate that because like you can't do people power at the local level as much, but. I, I don't know. I, it, to me, there's the flip side is it does well for solidarity. You make sure that if you're doing something, it works for people everywhere, I guess, if you're doing it right. Uh, well, well, it's a little bit different than, say, the rent regulations in California or Oregon that were recently passed. There is not a statewide – there are not statewide rent regulations in New York State. Oh, so the state regulates it, but they have a specific geographical bound. Exactly. That exactly. sucks. <laughs> like, Why would you yeah, do that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there are a few other municipalities that have rent stabilization. Um, Nassau County, I think, has a rent stabiliz- is subject to rent stabilization law that is again controlled by the state legislature. Um, so all of all of the political battles regarding rent stabilization occur uh, at the state level. The most recent battle was in 2019 when a number of pro tenant reforms. Uh, passed the state legislature um, that closed a lot of landlord loopholes. There were a lot of loopholes that allowed rent-stabilized landlords to exit rent stabilization, right? If like rents increased to a certain threshold, um, there are also vacancy bonuses. So rent rent stabilization in New York um, at this point uh, does not include any vacancy decontrol. Um, so it's it's certainly unique compared to rent stabilization that yeah. happened. California, right? Like San Francisco, Los Angeles, um, San, the San Jose rent stabilization as well. Uh, all, all, all of California is, yeah, oh, well, it, right, right. It, yeah, it must be uh, decontrol. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a, that's a state law. Uh, but that's that's inter- I mean I, I yeah I think vacancy control I'm, I'm on the record saying I think that's the theoretically correct way but you know it's yet it's more difficult to do it right but you know it's worth doing. Oh, I agree. I, I mean, I certainly have mixed feelings about it to say the least. Um, and right now, well, no, for the last few years, there's been a campaign during every state legislative session to enact um, what's called good cause eviction. Which would be, um, which will be a statewide regulation um, that would provide uh, lease renewal protections uh, and and would stipulate rent regulations based on a percentage of the inflation rate. So I think it's 150 percent of the localized inflation rate or three percent, whichever is higher. Um, and that would apply to all rentals statewide. Um, the rent stabilized units in New York City would still be subject to New York's uh, specific rent stabilization law, but but all unregulated units would be subject to good cause eviction protections. Um, that has failed the legislature at least two, maybe uh, maybe three years in a row now. What, so, so so New York New York City uh, tenants don't have just cause right now. Not in unregulated units. In oh, okay. Oh, okay. Sure. That's that's interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. And oh, so I guess yeah, that's a that's a major battleground right there. Uh, yeah. But also, like, I guess if you know offhand, like, what what are the protections look like for like redeveloping a building and all that? You know, do uh, uh, as far as is there like as far as like anti displacement 
kind of interventions to make sure that like it isn't like hey you know we're developing all the leases are are severed and you know good luck find a place or is there much sure sure uh, yeah so it also depends whether or not you live in a rent stabilized building or if you live in an unregulated building if you live in a rent stabilized building there are pretty strict relocation relocation assistance provisions that the state will enforce um a lot of landlords will try to skirt those regulations through informal buyouts tenants sure um but there's like a, there's like a formula and a payment schedule that that um, landlords of rent stabilized buildings are supposed to adhere to and demolish um, their buildings. Yeah, and, I, I kind of yeah, imagine there must tenants. be there must be good demo protections because if there weren't, they all be condos by now. So that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and it's hard to even without demolition, it's hard to convert um, a rent stabilized building to a, a condominium building as well that that's there's a lot of regulations prevent those conversions but yeah yeah rent rent stabilized tenants who are facing demolition you know could easily expect to get a good hundred thousand couple hundred thousand dollars in in relocation assistance um and landlords i think landlords can be compelled to identify alternative housing um for like like comparable units um, to to rehouse those tenants. Um, yeah, I, I suppose in the in the big scheme, that's a big question of like, okay, so if you have these kind of restrictions, does that like what do you the flexibility you need to actually like build new housing? And either the thing is you need to have kind of good but flexible ways to kind of uh, treat tenants well, but also rebuild, or maybe you write that off and say, okay, we're only doing owner occupied you know units, which is like, well, I mean that's it's certainly an approach, but like you really have to go, you know, full out to kind of say, okay, we're, we're redeveloping like all the owner occupied areas, but I don't know if that's happening. Right. Well, I, I, I think there's a lot of potential for housing production growth in neighborhoods that are predominantly owner occupied. I, I think that, yeah, I think that's, I think that's, um, and that's a low hanging fruit in my mind. And you know, like, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, right. I mean, only 30% of, New York City's residents live in owner-occupied housing, but that owner-occupied housing um, constitutes uh, uh, a disproportionate share of New York City's land mass. Um, yeah. You know, a pretty significant share of New York City's land mass. And even even in Manhattan, there's lower Manhattan. There's you know, relative to Manhattan, at least there's some lower density neighborhoods that could accommodate a lot more housing growth. Um, Right, like the West Village, Greenwich Village, Soho, that area. Um, yeah. And I mean, I live in I live in like a medium density neighborhood, about forty thousand people per square mile, which compared to most places in the U.S. is extremely high. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but Ridgewood borders Bushwick, which is much much denser, for example. So I and I live in a neighborhood that builds virtually no housing. Um, the community district that I'm in, which includes Ridgewood, Maspeth. Glendale, Middle Villages are all Queens neighborhoods. Um, over 150,000 people in total uh, built something like 13 income restricted affordable units over five year period from 2015 to 2020. Uh, I mean, just absolutely dismal, pathetic. Yeah. Um, and and Ridgewood is the densest of those neighborhoods. Um, Middle Village is a predominantly um, R two, R three, R four, you know, like really low density zoning 
designations, um, lots of single family housing. So I think there is a lot of potential in, in these predominantly homeowner neighborhoods for for new housing development. Yeah, I mean, just like in the biggest sense, I mean, I really, I mean, New York City is, it's a real city. It's a great city. Uh, but it is kind of sad. Like everything good was built, you know, about a century ago. And like, yeah. yeah, you really hope you do something. I mean, like, it's just so sad. It's like the Second Avenue subway just sucks, you know, as far yeah. as like compared to like the classic stuff. So I feel like we have to do a lot of stuff different to kind of make new stuff that's going to be built as well as the old stuff. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic in some senses that we can at least stop futzing around. We stop kind of bending over backwards for, you know, busy buddies and weird, weird stuff. But yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, I would love to see the municipality of New York actually revive its own development. Hell yeah. Uh, That would be wonderful. And I'd love to see the municipality of New York reform its, its capital planning and capital budgeting processes. Right. I mean, uh, the city spends, a million dollars to renovate a kitchen and a fire station right now. I mean, it's completely outrageous. Um, yeah. Yeah. The city used to build, used to build a lot of stuff and a lot of that built by the public sector. Not been the case for a long time. Yeah. I mean, Timoney was corrupt, but like, you know, they, they had public works, whereas, you know, like now you get corrupt administrations, which just kind of like know how to do not much whole lot of anything. So it's pretty sad. Yeah. 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 It's challenging because the public sector hasn't, been a developer for so long there's there's no institutional knowledge there's no in-house knowledge there and so the public sector is just so dependent on on consulting firms um, and contractors to do all of this work and it's just a it's it's just a vicious cycle um, at this point yeah i mean i don't know too about like just public land ownership in general like do they cry poor of like oh we have no we have no possibility of getting new land to build on yeah that's a good question um i'm not sure like how much land new york city the municipality owns compared to other municipalities in the u.s uh which is pretty low across the board except for perhaps you know peripheral i mean like what you really what you really want is to own you know huge amounts in the heart of the city and everything, which is certainly not the case. It's all privatized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The municipality was a large landowner in all through the 70s and to the 90s, but but the policy was always to sell off uh, those surplus lands, yeah. To auction off those assets. Yeah, it, it, including residential property that was redeveloped as market rate property, but also residential property that was redeveloped as as income restricted um 100 affordable housing yeah no matter what um it is for the most part now owned by the private sector whether that's for-profit entity or on at least a nominally non-profit entity i mean in any case i mean yeah a lot to dig into but i, I think you definitely answered a lot of my questions and uh i think did a you know it seems like we cover what we wanted to as far as you know <laughs> the general shape of this very 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 complicated and confusing system Hey, I had a lot of fun. You know, I love this podcast. It's one of my favorite podcasts. And I love taxes. You know, I'm yeah. kind of a freak. I'm kind of a freak in that regard. Well, that's the ideal guest then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so thanks, thanks, thanks. Great. thanks for making the time. We have been talking about property tax and more in New York City. Uh, you can find our guest at the uh, handle Vast Situation on Twitter. 
Uh, since we recorded, a lot of uh, interesting fights at the state level, kind of uh, disappointing fights that saw everything from zoning reform, good cause, and 421A extension all get defeated and make no one happy. Uh, maybe we'll get into that in a future episode sometime. In any case, you can find this episode and all previous episodes of the Henry George Program at the website seethecat.org. This is a presentation of Keys Shoe, Stanford. <laughs>